Masechet Ketubot Daf Samech Zayin. We are going to see in the next Mishnah the famous series of stories about how one should give charity to the poor. Uh, if someone that's used to uh, used to a high standard of living, then one must provide even that from the public funds. Uh, so very important series of stories there. But we begin with the discussion of when a man has to pay the ketubah, and he has to pay for the dowry amount. So she brings in cash. She also brings in furniture, utensils. So he has to pay it back in a different amount than the way he came in. We saw if it's talking about cash, she brings in a thousand dollars, he has to pay back fifteen hundred uh, because in the meantime the cash increased in value. He had the usage value of it. If however it's utensils, then for two reasons he has to pay uh, t- uh, uh, one on, uh, uh, only four-fifths of the amount that it was, either because they wear and tear, and or because it was estimated, the estimated value was inflated, so he has to pay the actual amount. So those are the two types of things. Cash is more, you have to pay more for utensils, less. Uh, however, we're going to see now that there are some things that are in an in-between category, some things that are technically items, but kind of like a cash crop, they're treated like cash and other things like gold we're going to start off with that also is an in-between category, maybe depending on its form. So let's see. If she brings in, we're talking about pieces of gold, not formed into a vessel, but not coins either, just some pieces. So we estimate the value, and he pays that exact value. We do not treat it like cash and add 50%. We do not treat it like a vessel and subtract a fifth. Uh, but rather it's the same amount because uh, gold will keep its value. It's not going to, there's a, there's a standard rate for it and it's not going to decrease. Okay. Metibe. That's what Biochanan says. We have a Braita that contradicts it. That says, Hazahav hadehu kekelim. It says gold is like utensils. And so, my love kekelim shal kesef defachte. Doesn't that mean it's like, it's like, uh, silver utensils, and that means it would diminish, and he pays only uh, he pays only four fifths of the value. So we say no, uh, that would be a contradiction. No, it's talking about is like golden vessels. Gold vessels also uh, like gold pieces and gold vessels. They don't go down in value. I guess gold vessels people don't really use that much, and so they don't go down, or because the value of gold is a very set standard, and so they won't be able to inflate the estimation. Uh, so therefore, point is gold pieces are like the Badaita is saying gold utensils, and both share uh, stay the same value. Wait, can If that's the case, then the Badaita should have uh, said language of gold pieces are like its utensils, meaning of gold, not just like utensils by which would we would mean other any utensils. So the language of the Braita really doesn't fit this interpretation. Okay, that is, uh, that's the question. Now, we're going to go, uh, that's question number one. We're going to get back to it. So remember this question from Kelav. 
the language. But second question that we're going to answer first. Ve'od, Tanya. Furthermore, let's quote the whole Braita, the Braita in full that we just quoted a snippet of, and we'll see that in context also, it's a difficult interpretation to say that it's talking about its own vessels, gold vessels. Because here, Zahab Kelim. So, first of all, gold pieces are like utensils. Whereas golden coins are like cash. You have to add 50%. That's Tanakama. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel Omer, b'mkom shenahagu shelo lefortan, shamin otan varehu b'shovyan. Rabban Gamliel is qualifying, we're going to see, is he qualifying the first or second clause? But he says, in a place where um, gold is not exchanged, there's no regular exchange for for gold, then we estimate it and he pays the same amount, the equal amount. Now, so he could be responding to either the first one that says you pay less because it's like utensils or you pay more because it's like cash. So let's try out each. Which one is he talking about? If he's talking about the second clause, that's talking about here um, uh, coins, that uh, golden uh, coins are like cash. So so that means Rashbag says only if there's an exchange, then there's a, then they're like cash. But if there's no, they're not read, readily exchanged, then you just pay the same amount. So that would mean that according to Tanakama, even if there's no ready exchange for it, you'd still call them cash. That doesn't make sense. Halaf nafke. Because they're not they they're not used. You can't just go and buy and sell them. This would be like you know special collectors' coins, even though technically they're coins. But you can't just go uh, into a regular store and use a old silver dollar. They're like, oh, what is this? We don't know how to we don't know how to exchange this. You have to. You can only exchange it in a specialty store. So it's, it doesn't make sense that Tanakama would consider that to be cash. Rather, the Maspirashbag is arguing on the Resha. When the Tanakhama says that silver is like utensils, so that must be that the Tanakhama thinks that they are silver. So they have to be like silver. So you see, this is going to be the challenge to uh, the, the, the explanation we just had uh, that in order to reconcile it, we're saying that they are like gold uh, pieces are like gold um, utensils and they stay the same but that is impossible you could have done that if the Rashbag was talking about the Sefa but that doesn't work he has he actually must be talking about the Resha and it only makes sense if according to Takama gold is like silver utensils and decrease in value and Rabban Shema Megam Leomer Harehu Kedinarin Shelzahab Emakom Shenagu Shelo Lefortan Rashbag says in a place where they don't normally exchange gold then they are like gold coins, uh, gold coins where there's no exchange that remain the same value. So therefore, the best explanation of the Braita so far is that Rashbag is arguing on the, on the first case. And since Rashbag uh, is the one that says it's the same amount, gold pieces, you keep the same, that means me, Tanakama says you, get, you pay less for it. So pay less because it's like silver coins. And therefore, this would be a contradiction 
to Rabbi Yochanan that says, for pieces of silver, you pay, he pays back an equal amount. We cannot reconcile it. Um, so we're going to answer it with two possible answers. In fact, Rashbag is only arguing on the second case. Leave the first case alone. The first case could be talk about gold pieces are like gold uh, utensils and stay the same. And so that's Tanakama. That would be consistent with Yochanan. That's fine. Rashbag is only arguing on the Sefa, talking about gold coins. But since there, even though there's no ready exchange, with difficulty you can exchange them. And so you, uh, the, so that is subject to Machloket. Uh, the Tanakama says, since they are used, even though it's more difficult, you might have to shop around a bit to see someone that find someone that accepts it. But they are can be used as cash, and therefore they increase in value. More sabad, whereas Rashbag says, because it's too difficult, so difficult, so they are not treated used as cash, and therefore they do not increase in value. So in fact, we could explain it that way. If you're really bothered by the fact that there could be a Tanakama, anyone that would say that when there's no exchange, it still uses cash, if that bothers you, then you know what? We can say, Maybe the entire Badaita is all Rashbag. There is no Tanakama, there is no Machloket about it. But to do that, we'll just have to add a couple of words. So gold is, in fact, gold pieces are like golden utensils. And so that's consistent with Biochanan. They have the same, keep the same value. Dinareza have golden coins. They are like regular cash. But that's only true when there's a ready exchange. But when the place where there's no exchange for gold, for no standard exchange like to, for gold, to use as as cash, then we estimate the value and you pay that equal amount. And all that is the opinion of Rashbak. So no one disagrees and we can still leave the Resha talking about gold and gold. Because Rashbak after all said that um, when there's no exchange uh, ready readily available then we estimate the gold and they keep the same value referring to golden coins okay so we resolve the second uh, problem that how do we explain the entire Braita and uh, that what the what the first line means so fine you explain that but remember we had a first question that we never answered nevertheless that for opening line, if you want to say Zahab is like Kelim, and if by Kelim you mean gold coins and it keeps the same value, gold pieces are like gold, sorry, gold utensils. Gold pieces are like gold utensils and keep the same value. It should have, should have said it's like its utensils, right? Gold pieces are like their utensils. And so it doesn't say that, so it's very difficult to fit the language in. Uh, so instead, let's find another answer that can answer, that would respond even to this. Rather, we can say that the Braita is not dealing with gold pieces, like big pieces, but rather small fragments. So Rav says even uh, uh, gold dust. 
since it's, since it's so small, then it does diminish over time, uh, just as it's being handled, little bits of it get lost. And so that's why it, um, it is, in fact, if they're little, pe tiny pieces, uh, little fragments, then it's like silver vessels. That's why um, it says Kelim, Thomas silver vessels, and it diminishes in value. Whereas Rabbi Yochanan, he was talking about when they are larger pieces, larger pieces will not diminish in value and you pay the same amount. Okay, good. So we resolved all that. All right. Now that was about gold. Now we're going to talk about other items. He says spices from Antioch, they are like money, like a spice trade. Spices you can use like cash. And therefore, if she brings them into the dowry, He's going to have to pay back 50% more. The camels of Arabia, right? If someone uh, gives his uh, a dowry, here you could take my daughter and I will give you 10 camels. This is literally the, the, the source for it. Um, then camels, since these, are, uh, these camels are uh, so uh, uh, wanted, such a need for them, and it's very stable in their price. Therefore, she can collect from them. Okay, well, this could be referring to that they're kind of like cash, like in the previous one, or more likely it's referring to a different halacha, which is that generally a woman can collect her ketubah from land. The, the ketubah gets a lien, uh, causes a lien on a person's land, but not from movable objects, because uh, land is more stable, movable objects not so much. And so Yochanan is teaching that camels of Arabia, they are very stable in their value, and therefore she can collect from the camels like land. They're considered like land, not like movable objects. The same with the following items. Amar papi, hane totebe, tebe mirse, isha gova, parna mehem. Um, these robes from Ben Mirse, they're also uh, so, so valuable and stable in their value that she can collect the parana, um, which is a Greek word that means dowry, from it. Amara papi hane sake de rodia ve de kim honia isha goba parana mehem. Also, sacks from uh, rodia might be roads or might be somewhere in Bavel, and these ropes from Kimchona. Also, these are very good, um, high-quality items. Rava says at first, Rava was from Mechoza, that uh, famous cosmopolitan city uh, that was a suburb of the Persian capital, Tesiphon. So they had these pouches there, these money pouches. And, you know, I guess money pouches, everybody needs one. And so these were very good money pouches. And so I say, he says at first, I thought that you can uh, use them to collect. Uh, people rely on the, the value of the money pouch itself like um, like land. Uh, so, but however, once I saw that, you know what people did, they if they got paid in pouches, they would take the pouches and go buy land with it. So you see, they weren't really relying on collecting like a lien on the pouches themselves. It's just that, yeah, the pouches were a valuable transition to use to buy land, but really they were relying on the real estate.
And so he changed his mind and says, no, you can't use pouches like land, yeah, because they only use it to buy land. All right, now next Mishnah, if uh, a man says, here, I give you my wife, my daughter, in marriage, and he doesn't specify a dowry amount, so the standard amount is going to be 50 zoos. That's uh, that's the standard dowry. That's a nice little rhyme here. Um, if he makes it, the father of the bride says, listen, you can take my daughter, I am not giving a dowry. If he says nothing, he has to pay 50. But if he stipulates, on condition, you can have my daughter on condition, I'm not giving you a dowry. So if the husband agrees to that, that's fine. But the husband then cannot say, uh, oh, listen, when I marry her, when I bring her into my house and with Nisu'in, then I will clothe her. But in the meantime, not my problem. Rather, he has to provide clothing for her even during the Kiddushin period when she's still living in her father's house. So usually if the father provides the dowry, then uh, the husband is only start his his responsibility to clothe his wife will only start when they're married. But here, because the father said, "I am not I am not clothing her," it doesn't make sense that she's going to be coming uh, to the to the marriage with with uh, wearing old rags. Uh, so therefore, his responsibility kicks in even before the nisuin. Some someone who marries off a an orphan. She's poor. She has no father to provide a dowry. So the the administrators of the charity funds have to give her at least fifty zoos. Even though she's poor and she's an orphan girl, you can't leave her with nothing. Standard, she gets the standard um, dowry like everybody else. Furthermore, if there is sufficient money in the kis, in the charity fund, then we have to give her even more according to her dignity. Right? If she's from an aristocratic family and they're used to having a large dowry or from a, she's from a lower class family and they're used to a small dowry, whatever it is, if there's sufficient funds, we have to give according to... If there's insufficient funds, then you have to give at least everybody the minimum of 50 zoos. But if you have some surplus uh, from the money collected, then it, that's that's considered charity also, even though you're providing something with more than the usual amount. Okay, this line is going to kick off a long discussion regarding the limits of char- the upper limit of charitable giving. When it says that a standard dowry is 50 zoos, what kind of zoos? Is it talking about the Tyrian ones that are a large amount or the simple ones that are an eighth of the amount? We saw before already that there's um, uh, the same name for different different denominations of coins. And so Ibaya says it's the cheaper one. So the the end says you give everybody 50 zoos. If there's enough funds, then you give her even more. What does this kis mean? Literally a, a pocket or uh, um, uh, Rachava says it's talking about the charity fund. So if it's talking about 50 zoos of the Tyrian expensive ones, that means that you're giving everybody a minimum of a large amount 
a 50 large zuzim. So that means that's the if that's the minimum, then if there is sufficient funds, you give even more than that. How could it be, right? That would be already even the minimum is already something that's uh, deserving for a rich person. Uh, so you can't imagine uh, even higher than that makes no sense. Rather, it's uh, 50 provincial dinarim, the simple cheaper ones. Good. Now, there are very limited funds in the charity fund, and we have to uh, feed an orphan boy and an orphan girl. Both of them need just their, their basics, but there's only enough to, to give to one of them. Uh, so we give the girl orphan, and then and only then, if there's more funds come in, we give the boy orphan. Why? Because it's more natural for a, a man to be a beggar than a woman. It's really not very disrespectful, uh, shameful for a woman to have to go, a girl to have to go and beg. And therefore, we'd rather not, no one beg. Hopefully there'll be funds for everyone. But if you have to pick, then give to the girl over the boy. Now, Yatom Vaivitoma, Sheba Uli Nase, Masinta Yatomava, Hakar Masina Etayatom. Similarly, if you have an orphan boy and an orphan girl, both of them have no money for weddings, and so we want to provide for their weddings. Who do we do it first for? First, the orphan girl. We provide her dowry, we take care of her wedding, and if there's more funds, then we take care of the boy. Why? Because to be an unmarried girl is more humiliating than to be an unmarried man. Hopefully, we can we can help everyone, but if not, the priority is the girl. For the girl, we already talked about the amount of the dower, be 50, if more, according to her level. For the boy, now usually in any marriage, the guy has is responsible for providing a home and, and furniture and all that. So if he's an orphan boy, we have to help him with all that. He can't afford it. He doesn't have a father to give that to him. So we will uh, rent for him a house and give him a bed and uh, and a bedding and utensils. And only then we will go and pay for the wedding. There's no point in paying for a wedding when he has no home to bring her to. And how do we know that charity is not just giving him a few few bucks, but you have to take care of all of his needs? Because the Pasuk in Devarim says, um, Open your hand, lend him, uh, sufficient for what he lacks, in whatever he lacks. So since there's so many phrases from repetition in this Pasuk, we learn from each phrase. So what he lacks, he's lacking a house. What, whatever he lacks, that's bed and a table. So the word law we connect to the word law when uh, for Adam and Chava. So Chava is the law. So first you do de machsoro, then you do the bed, and only then law. Now he can have 
um, of, uh, uh, now he can have he can bring a wife into his new home. Okay, beautiful. Now, once we quote that Pasuk, now we're going to quote another Derasha about it. When it says you have to give a poor person sufficient for his needs. Sufficient means that you have to give him what he needs for basic, uh, basic paranasa, basic support. But you don't have to make him rich. There's no need for that. But the next phrase, which is a repetition, it's an extra phrase. Whatever he lacks, that teaches us that, in fact, um, if he's used to a high amount of living, a high level of uh, um, a level of living, and he's used to having a chauffeur, we have to find, provide him a limo and a chauffeur. In those days, it meant even a horse to ride on and a servant to run in front of him, right, if that's his stature. So the point is that if he's used to a regular standard amount of living, then that's what we have to provide for him, and we don't have to make him rich. But if he was used to flying first class, and now if he has to sit in uh, in, in the regular class, he's not going to feel himself. So then even that uh, subjective, psychological feeling of not being the same is also a form of poverty. Again, this is not the priority. If there's insufficient funds, of course, you have to take care of everybody's basic needs first. But let's say, imagine there are unlimited funds. Um, so is this considered a charity? Yes. Whatever he's lacking, whatever he feels like he's lacking, whatever he's used to, that is part of the mitzvah. We're going to have a series of stories that put this law into practice. And it says about Hillel Azaken, the greatest sage of the generation, that he uh, provided for a certain poor person who was of noble descent, Ben Tovim. So he was used to a high standard of living, but now he came on hard times. So he, Hillel, provided from charity funds a horse to... Um, uh, maybe from his own funds, that doesn't say, a horse to ride on and a servant to run before him. One million. One time he couldn't find the servant. The servant didn't come and he, this poor guy is waiting there. So Hillel himself went and he was the chauffeur. He went and ran three miles on behalf of this poor person. So this shows the um, great extent uh, that one has to go to one should go to in order to provide even the subjective needs of someone who's used to luxury. A similar case where the people that lived in the city in the upper Galilee, they would buy for a certain poor person who again was of noble descent and he was used to eating very fine meat and they would buy for him a liter of meat every day because he he had to eat meat most people didn't eat meat every day only when someone very rich so now we ask about that story a liter of meat is actually not so much uh, it could be a value measure or a weight measure but it's a you know it's a it's a piece of meat but like what's not so, what's the big deal that you're telling going and telling us the story about it now it wasn't just regular meat it was 
poultry, fowl, which uh, in those days was actually more expensive, more luxurious than animal meat. Or um, that they used a liter, the weight of a liter of coins, and to use the to buy the meat, and thus so that would be much more. It's the weight of the coins that they used to buy. So this is an exorbitant amount of meat that they bought for this one person. Or another opinion of Ashamad Hatam Kefar Katanhaya, Bechol Yoma Havam Afsede Hayut Chivat Chevata Am Tulte. It was a small village and he needed fresh meat every day. Then there are freezers, and so every day they had to slaughter an animal for him, even though the guy ate just a regular, you know, a, a regular uh, um, a sized piece of meat. But to give him a fresh, uh, fresh every day, they had to kill an animal. Since it was a small village, they didn't have a market to sell the rest of the animal. So, uh, but nevertheless, everyone got together and they provide from the public funds an animal every day so that this person could have his piece of steak. Okay. Um, so now a story of a poor person that comes to Ben Nechemia who's in charge of the charity funds. It's interesting that the rabbis and back then were in charge of giving out charity. And so the rabbi asks, what is your usual diet? All right, I'd like to you know, live up to your standard. The poor person says, I always have fat meat and old wine. Nowadays, we don't, we like lean meat, but fat back then was hard to come by, so that's the delicacy. Rebbe Nechamia says, um, why don't you try to belittle yourself and eat lentils with me? I'm the one that gives out the charity funds. I eat lentils. That's my regular lunch, right? So how about you? I know maybe you're used to this high level from the, your your upbringing, but how about just come in? And not, I'm not asking you to go and and uh, and be impoverished. Just be on my level, a regular person. Have some lentil, delicious. So the poor person agreed. Avamet, and he died. Didn't didn't fit. Didn't work with his uh with his uh uh, uh, uh um. Uh, his system, and he died from not having what he was used to. Amar, oy, lo, Nechemia says, woe to this person that was killed by Nechemia. He's referring to himself, right? This poor guy. Now the Gona asks about the story. Adraba, oy, lo, He should have said, woe to me, Nechemia. I killed a person. He should have followed the law, right? And I understand He's, his, his reaction is what many of our reactions are. He says, really, to such an extent, we should go and buy, we have to buy someone a first-class ticket, we have to buy someone a chauffeur, we should get someone the, the most expensive steak when, when most people are not uh, eating that. Is that really a good use of public funds? And so Rebbe Nechemiah was uh, trying to lower him with, with the poor person's um, agreement. But we see from this story the wisdom of the law that, yes, if you can, uh, subjective uh, feeling of poverty and also what a person's constitution is used to is uh, an important thing. And he died because of it. So really, he should have blamed himself and said, Woe is to me, Nechemia, I'm the cause of killing him. I should have followed the Demach Sorol rule.
Rather, well, the reason why Nehemiah said woe to him is because this poor person should not have pampered himself to such an extent and been so spoiled that he got used to such a high level of uh, of food, right? Especially because he didn't have the funds anymore, and so now he knows he's relying on the public funds to do this, so he should have lowered himself a little. Maybe even saying, if someone grows up rich, they should not, even if they can afford it, they shouldn't get used to such a diet, because, right, this is uh, improper, uh, that um, he should have indulged himself to such an extent. And so that's what Nehemiah said, woe is to him. I think in conclusion, we see that it's really both sides. There is responsibility on the one hand of those who are Ta- on the taking side, that they have to try not to not to take so much and lower their standard of living to be reasonable. On the other hand, the main thrust of this of this uh, series of stories is on the givers, and the givers uh, their responsibility is not to analyze why why are you spending that, why are you used to that, but rather if funds are available to give generously according to each person's standard, even if it's a luxurious standard. Fantastic story about a poor person that came to Rava who was giving out the charity funds. And they have the form, you know, what do you usually eat? I have a, always every every day I have a fat hen and aged wine. A hen even more expensive than the meat. So now Rava says the what we are all thinking also to the poor person and says explicitly what we saw in the discussion of the previous story. He says, Aren't you concerned about the pressure to the community that you're demanding every day? We have to go and raise that money. I mean, you know, even if they can do it, you know, don't, aren't you concerned about that? The poor person says, what, you think I'm eating from their funds, from people's money? God will provide. I am eating from the merciful one that, who has unlimited funds. Pasuk says, the eyes of all beings uh, look to you, God, and you give them food in its time, each and every person's time. Ito is singular. It doesn't say in their time. It's not that Hashem provides food for everyone equally. No. For its, for each person, each individual's time. This teaches that God gives everybody what they need in their proper time, each according to his level. And therefore, my level is, yeah, I need a fat hen and aged wine. I'm not, I'm not concerned about the pressure on the community because I'm not eating from the community. God will provide. Very nice. Professor Moshe Halbertal, in teaching this story, calls this guy a poor philosopher. He's poor and he's a philosopher. He's also not really a great uh, uh, philosopher um, or theologian. Poor theologian, he says. Okay. Well, what happened? In the meantime, while they're talking, and Rava's trying to convince him that, you know, this is improper, uh, sure enough, Rava's sister came to town. Rava had not seen her for 13 years. They hadn't seen each other. And she brought a gift with her. She brought a fat hen and aged wine. Look at that. So uh, Rava said to himself, 
Wow, I can't believe what's in front of me. Amar lach kum echol. So he tells the poor, Rabat tells the poor person, I apologize to you. I spoke too soon. Uh, go, go, go ahead and eat. So you see, the conclusion of the story is that in fact, uh, the poor person was right. And, uh, and we understand why Dava was, um, was concerned about the, uh, the, the pressure on the community. But in the end, that's not wasn't his place. He sh- if it's available, he should give. And somehow uh, Hashem will provide, or the sister will provide through the sister. So that uh, seems to be the conclusion of the story. Is the story something that you can rely on? Are you going to repeat this? Is, this, is there going to be another sister that comes every day? It's a good question, but at least in this case, it turned out well. Tenor banan. En lo ve'en oroselit panes. Notnim lo neshum halva'a. Okay, now other, other um, uh, challenges of giving, of giving charity. If someone ha- does not have money, so they need funds, but they're too proud to take. They don't want to be supported. They're going to starve to death rather than take money. So are we responsible for them? So the answer is yes. We give it to them as a loan. First we say, you know, we'll lend you the money. And, and then if he still says no because he doesn't want to pay it back, so we, uh, if he can, or he can't pay back rather, then we forgive the loan. So we give it as a loan, even though he's proud, to, he doesn't want to take a handout, but everyone will take a loan, right? That's a normal thing. Even rich people sometimes take loans out. So we give him a loan, and then we just forgive the loan and make it a, make it a gift. And that way, um, even though he's too proud, we're still responsible to feed him. Hachamim say, you do it the opposite way around. First, you offer him a gift. Now, he's going to reject it because he don't want to take a hand out. And then we say, all right, make it a loan. So we ask, why would you give it to him as a gift? The whole point, the whole case is that he doesn't want to take. What he means that we open up as a gift so that way he knows that a gift is available and you won't feel the pressure of having to pay back. If you just say, hey, I'll, uh, at the beginning, I'll give you a loan. Well, he's not, he's not, he doesn't have anything to pay back. So, and he's too proud to take anything. So he won't, he won't take anything at all. But if you start off saying it's a gift and he says, no, no, I can't take a gift. But in the back of his mind, he knows that he won't, a gift is available. Then after you say, you know what, make it a loan. He says, okay, because he is under pressure and that way he'll accept the loan. So these are just two different uh, strategies of, uh, of convincing a person and making him feel dignified even though he's taking charity. Yes, love and all the Now, a different problem. We were, talk, we were already talking about before a poor person that came from noble descent. What if there's an actual rich person, but he's so stingy that he won't spend any money, even on himself. He'd rather starve than spend a dollar on uh, his own food. So, yes, uh, he has, but he doesn't want to uh, support himself. Not need, do we have to care about him? So we give it to him as a gift, and then we will take it back later. So, hold on. If you go and take it back from him, then he's not going to take, he's not going to want support anymore. He's so stingy, he doesn't want to spend any money. So if you give him, you know, uh, $10 today, and then next week you say, okay, you have to pay back the $10, then he'll no, never, never again take the money, and then he'll starve. So what what do we do? What we mean is after he dies. So we provide for him from public charity funds. Here's this guy. He's a multimillionaire. 
Maybe he is multimillionaire because he didn't spend any money on him, even on himself. But nevertheless, we provide for him food from the charity funds, and then after he dies, then we'll go collect from his uh, property. Rabbi Shimon Omer, En lo ve'en oro selit panes, en niskakin lo. Rabbi Shimon disagrees, says, if, yes lo, if he has money and he doesn't want to take, it's not our problem, right? We don't have to deal with him. He has money. Let him go and take away. We can't spend charity funds on someone who is wealthy. And that he disagrees with Tanakama. Now, en lo ve'en oro selit panes, omrim lo, have mashkon veton kedeshetazuach dato alav. Back to the case of someone who does not have money, but is too proud to take, so we could tell him, bring a collateral. And that way, he'll, he'll, he'll seriously think that it's really a loan. Because, uh, right, everyone, everyone takes loans and they bring collateral. That way, it will make it feel really like a loan. And that way, his mind will be, will be settled. Um, even though we know, and maybe he knows, that he may not be able to pay back. But at least he will feel dignified. Tenora banan. Now we we'll go back to the original pasuk. The words before demach are haavet tavitenu. Open your hand. You shall surely open. It's a double verb. So what do we need a double verb? So haavet is referring to uh, someone who doesn't have, but he's too proud and doesn't want to take money. That we give him a loan and then we forgive the loan. That's what we learned from the word ha'avet. Ta'avitenu, the doubled word, is talking about The second word refers to someone who has money but doesn't want to spend any money, even on himself, that we give him as a gift and then we will uh, take it back after he dies. And that is opinion of Rabbi Yudah, which in this paraita, which we saw was anonymous in the previous paraita. Hachamim omerim, yesh lo ve'eno rosit panes, en niskakin memenu. Hachamim here say, if he has and does not want to spend any money, even though he's rich, we don't have to deal with him. This was the opinion of Rabbi Shimon in the previous paraita. Um, according to Chachamim, so I understand they will, they can uh, explain Ha'avet in the same way. If he has no money, then we give him a loan and then we forgive the loan. But he disagrees with Ta'avitenu. He, does, he doesn't think that we have to provide for a rich person. So what is he going to do with the word Ta'avitenu? The answer is, He would agree with the methodology of the Bishmael that against the Akiva, we don't take uh, each word like a Torah is a code language that every word has to signify something, but rather Torah speaks in normal human language. And in normal regular grammar, when you want to emphasize something, you use this double, double form a uh, double verb form, and so he doesn't have to learn anything special from it. All right, um, the, next we have a series of stories about Mor Ukva. He was the Resh Galuta, the Exilarch in Bavel, so he was very wealthy, a very important political position, and he also was in dialogue with the sages, so he was um, uh, somewhat of a sage himself. He There was a poor person in this town. And every day he would take four dinar and uh, put it in the person's door slot. The doors in those days didn't have hinges on the side like we do, but rather pivot hinges on the top and bottom. And so on the bottom, the, the hinge is uh, goes inside a hole 
hole in the ground. And the hole is big enough that you can also throw coins into the hole, uh, kind of like a mail slot. And then the person on the other side could get them, but you could put them there without having to open the door. So he gave it anonymously is the point. He didn't knock on the door and say, hi, Mr. Poor Person, here it is. He just, as he's passing by, he would toss the money into the door slot. Uh, uh, door slot. One day, the poor person was curious. He says, I want to know who's doing me this kind deed and is giving me money every day. See, I mean, it's a high level to give anonymous to give anonymously, and so you're not doing it for your own honor. But on the other hand, the poor person, you know, he doesn't know who it is. He goes to uh, he goes to shul. Is that guy giving me? Is that guy giving me? Maybe, well, maybe I cut him off. So he's curious. He wants to know. So he's like waiting at the door to see when the coins will be deposited. Happened to be that day when the poor person was waiting at the door, Mor Ukva was late. Um, either going to or coming from the study hall, and because he was not on the regular schedule, his wife was walking together with him as he went out to uh, distribute the charity. As soon as the poor person saw someone bending the door, or maybe he pushed the door a bit to make room for the coins in that slot, so as soon as he saw that on the other side that the uh, the the door is slanting. Rahut uh, mikame. So the poor person came out to uh, come after the the Morukva to see who it is. Morukva saw that the door had opened and the, and someone was coming out. So Morukva ran away. Uh, from the poor person, together with his wife. And he entered into a hiding spot, the best hiding spot he could find was a furnace, a big you know, commercial oven uh, that uh, the, the fire was not on. It was already raked, all the coals were raked out, but it was still hot from from the re- residual heat. Morukva is standing on the floor and his feet are burning because it is still hot. So his wife was there, her feet were also on the floor, but she uh, was, was not burning. So she said, step on my feet. I don't know, I know my, my wife is much more resistant to heat. She takes hot things right out of the oven. She passes it to me, I can't touch it. So um, maybe that's it. But here, that was not the reason why she was not burning. Instead, he became depressed. He understood that the reason why she is not feeling uh, the heat is because she has more merit. He doesn't have as much merit to protect him from the pain of the heat. So he became depressed. Here he is trying to be a great person. He's going to study Torah. He's giving charity anonymously, the highest level of charitable giving. So how come he has, is suffering this heat? And she says, I, I also give charity, but my charity is different. I'm inside the house. In other words, I'm always available. And so when a poor person needs something, they know to come over. And my assistant is readily available. I give them food. I give them bread. And they eat it right away. You, on the other hand, you give them money, they have to go and they have to buy and they have to cook, so it's more indirect. Also, he has to wait for you to come. He says, is he coming now? Is he coming later? Me, I just make them feel at home. And so even though 
technically, Modukva is, is doing it on the highest level of charitable giving. He's not doing it for honor, he's doing it anonymously. It's true. But on the other hand, that an anonymity is causes some uh, uh, tension. Poor person is like, who is it? And he's waiting, he has to wait for it, has to go by, and so it's a little bit less of the human touch, and that she is available, she is um, able to bring that 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 personal warmth and direct connection in her charitable charitable giving. So in the end, she has more merit. We ask, Gumai kulehai. Um, how come they didn't? How come they ran into an oven, right? So okay, he's running after you. Say, uh, you know, uh, yes, it's me, right? You're welcome. Why? Why did they have to go into an oven? Okay, this long list of uh, trade-ins. Anyway, what did they say? I think there's so many trade-ins because this was said so often. That better that a person should go into um, an oven, a fiery oven, rather than embarrass someone in public. Minalan, how do we know that? Mitamad dichtiv himuset. When Tamar was about to be burnt at the stake because she was found pregnant, even though she was a shomeret yavam, she's waiting for uh, Yehuda, her father-in-law, to give her Shela, to marry Shela. So she's not allowed to be with another man. Now she's pregnant. Obviously, she was not. Uh, she she was not. Um, uh, 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 she committed adultery, and so she has to be burnt at the stake. And she was willing to be burnt, and and she she did not reveal that Yehuda was in fact the one who impregnated her. Instead, she said, "Whoever recognizes the staff, that's who the father is." And so, rather than embarrass her father-in-law Yehuda, she was willing to be burnt. So that from there we learn that better to be in a fiery oven rather than embarrass someone in public. And the point here is that this poor person, if he did know that it was the exilarch that was providing for for him, he would have felt embarrassed. And that's why they uh, went and hid in the oven. Another story about Morukva. There was a poor person in his neighborhood. He would give him 400 zoos every Ed of Yom Kippur. Ed of Yom Kippur, Morukva wants some extra merit to get a good judgment. And so he gave this lot, a lot of money. One day, Morukva couldn't go himself. So he told his son, here, Take this 400 uh, zoos, a huge amount of money, and give it to them. So the son comes back and says, listen, they don't need it. Amar my chazit. What do you mean? What do you see there? The father asks. The son says, Chazai yain yashan. I see that they're spilling old wine. They have so, they're so rich. They're like you know popping corks of uh, uh, of champagne and spilling it all over the floor. Amar Oh, the person. They're so spoiled. They're so pampered. They need such a a high standard of living, then they, they must need more. So he doubled and sent them double the amount. Okay, so it's a surprising ending. And the point is that to such an extent, if someone is used to a high level standard of living, then funds are available. And Mordechai was a rich guy, so he could afford it. Uh, then even pay them 
the higher standard of living. Okay, you could read the story in some in a, a slightly uh, critical way, which is that is Morukva doing it for them, or is he giving for himself? He's giving before Yom Kippur, meaning he's concerned about his own merits. So he's giving them, so he will get married. Not technically giving in the most responsible way. Maybe there's someone else that needs the funds more. Um, but nevertheless, okay, we um, we uh, consider it a good deed that he gave even to such a high level. When he was on his deathbed, Morukva said, bring me my ledger of charity. I want to see how much have I given over my entire lifetime. Said that he had given 7,000 of these uh, uh, gold, gold dinarim. This is a huge amount. This would be like saying, you know, 10 Tens of millions of dollars that he had given. So it looks good. He has a lot of merit. But he was not He was not happy. He says, my provisions are light. The way is far. Meaning the, 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 the way uh, after death, then after life. That's a very long time. And my provisions, my merits that will grant me a good um, place in the world to come are not sufficient. What we see here again is that the reason he's giving isn't to take isn't simply to take care of the poor or what do they need but rather he's giving because he wants to get married which is still good um, but I think it does uh, reflect on the way that he gives. Now, because of that, he says, I have to give more. And so he spent the Vazbez, sounds like to waste, like he just gave it out um, uh, indiscriminately. He gave out half of his money, half of his, all of his wealth, so that he could have more merit. Now the Gemara asks, how could he do that? The rabbis made a decree that someone who gives out money should not give more than a fifth. You should have to give at least a tenth, but not more than 20%. Um, so, uh, so how could he give a, a half if that's it's more than 20%? No, that limit is only when a person's alive. We don't want a person to give most of his most of his earning most of his money because then he will he may lose all his money. No point in a person giving away so much that he and and becomes poor and will be dependent, right? We want someone to be able to uh, give continually and so remain rich, so they can give every year. But after once a person's dying, then there's no problem. He's not going to need anything himself any, anymore. So you know the whoever whoever inherits him will get less. But okay, that's a different. Uh, that's their problem. And so therefore, since he was on his deathbed, he was permitted to give half of his wealth. So now we're going to talk about uh, uh, thieves, people that deceive. So again, these are people another another type of rich poor people that make believe they're poor but they're not actually poor what do we do about them so to be Abba he would wrap coins in a scarf and put the scarf behind him so he had like a, a tote bag behind with coins and everyone could come from behind and take if they needed that way he wants to be anonymous he doesn't want to have to check each person he wants to give generously anonymously however 
he would still mamsi nafshe, and he would make himself available to the homes of poor. He would walk by in the neighborhood near poor people, and everybody would know. Oh, look, it'd be Abaz there with coins, and they would they would not they would feel dignified and not be embarrassed to go and take. However, masle he would incline his eyes uh, a little bit from the corner of his eye. He would look at who was taking in order to protect from swindlers who aren't really poor and just taking. So even though it's like kind of the balance. You want to give generously, but you don't want people to take advantage. Uh, similar today to any charity organization or you know school that's deciding on tuition assistance. On the one hand, they you know, want to give in a dignified way and not have to ask a thousand questions about each person. On the other hand, you have to do some checks to make sure that the public funds are not being um, taken by people that really don't need it at all. All right, beautiful. Rabbi Hanina, Hava hu aniyad, Hava ragil, Shadure le, Arbaa zuze, Kol maale, Shabbeta. A story about Rabbi Hanina, there was a poor person. He would give him four dinad every week on Erev Shabbat, Friday. Yomahad, Shadrinu nihale, Biyad debito. One day, he couldn't go himself, so he sent his wife here, give these four. Uh, for zoos to the poor, poor, the poor family. Atai amrale la sarich. She came back and said, they don't need it. My chazid, what do you see? Shama'i dehava ka'amre le ba'me'ata so'ed. I heard them say, you know, what do you want to use for to, to dine, to set the table? Bitle kesef or bitle zahav? You want to use the silver t- tablecloth or the gold tablecloth? Now, you don't really make t- tablecloths out of silver or gold. It could be uh, talking about the, the fine white ones or the colored ones. Maybe they were embroidered with silver and gold. The point is that they have very luxurious items. They don't need the charity. And so his answer was not double and give it back. He said, no, these are these guys are thieves, right? They don't need it and they're taking money anyway. Uh, I presume he stopped giving after that. Nevertheless, he didn't feel bad about the money he gave. In fact, he said, we should thank the swindlers. Why? Because if not for them, we may, we, any time that we are, we are asked for charity and sometimes we say no and we just walk by someone who's begging, we could incur a sin upon ourselves. After all, the Pasuk says that um, if you uh, hold back and don't give someone who is needy, and it's talking about the Shavuot year, and you say, oh, he's not going to pay back, and I'm going to hold back giving him a loan. If he cries out to God against you, you will have a sin. So this is a very serious thing. Um, and so, therefore, we we need protection. Otherwise, every time anyone asks for money, we have to give them. Um, otherwise, they might call out to God, and we will be punished for, on that account. So we should thank the fact that there are swindlers. Since there are swindlers around, we can have, we can have an excuse to say, I didn't give him because I didn't know if he was sincere. I thought maybe he's, he's, uh, he's faking. And that way, at least we have an excuse um, out of this uh, very high level of responsibility that we would otherwise have. Um, beautiful uh, um, uh, messages in these stories and these laws. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.